Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Sophie Claire Violet, and we find out all about her life growing up in Mauritius and what it is that brought her to New Zealand, where she's studying anthropology. So we really dive deep into what actually is anthropology, and I certainly learned a lot through this interview. Sophie Claire's been borrowing my podcasting equipment for the last while, so it was really fun to be able to find out more about her projects and what it is that she's hoping to achieve with her life. If you enjoy this, then make sure you check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog, because there's more than 260 of those. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this interview with Sophie Claire. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Sophie Claire Violet to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Kia ora, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. We've gotten to know each other fairly well in the last few months because you've been actually using some of my equipment (laughs) to do your own podcast. So that's been really awesome to see you're growing and and doing a lot in that area. Um, But what we do on Seeds is we dive in a time machine to begin with and we go back in time. So I'm wondering if you could set the scene and tell us a little bit about what your life was like when you were, say, four or five years old. Uh, So I am from Mauritius, which is a small island in the Indian Ocean that's about the size of Canterbury. I come from a family of Creole descent. So we are descendants of Africans who were brought to Mauritius as slaves um, to work on the plantations. And so much of my childhood... Uh, was colored by walking um, in liminality in terms of our identity, you know. Mm. Um, And that's come through in our education and in the way that we understand ourselves um, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was very active. Um, I've been a dancer for most of my life and uh, embodied movement and embodied expression, I feel, has been... A guiding um, compass for me because of that upbringing. And just describe like where you lived, you know, like what type of a house was it? Was it in a big city? Was it out in the country? You know, set the scene for us because I've never been there. So yeah. Mauritius is very multicultural where I equate it to, I would describe it as a fruit salad of cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from an inner city um, suburb uh, called Rose Hill. And on my street, um, on the left of my, st- of, left of my house is this pink uh, two-story house um, that was built by a Muslim family. Mm-hmm. On the right is this multicolored house um, that was also built by a Muslim family. Across the road from my house um, is a compound of um, madras descent. Mm. Across the across the road from my house, on the right, is a small house uh, inhabited by a Creole family. And the reason why I um, describe these different ethnicities is because my street is like a micro ecosystem of mm. what Mauritius is like. 
So we celebrated Diwali, we celebrated Eid, um, we participate in one another's uh, weddings. So I went to Indian weddings and I ate biryani at my um, Muslim neighbor's house. And so I've been brought up with this love of cultural diversity, but also this understanding that uh, that takes work. And it, it takes work um, on a daily basis to recognize who we are, but also see the beauty in the difference of those um, in front of us that we interact with. Mm. So thinking about your childhood, um, one, we actually had a conversation before we started recording, and you're describing how there was actually an intergenerational nature of that. Um, what was the house like in terms of grandparents and others who were involved in your childhood? Uh, so we um, we live in big households in Mauritius. Mm -hmm. uh, so my where I live actually, uh, the foundations of our home was built by my grandfather, who had three daughters, and my mum is the youngest. And she uh, responded to the karanga of looking after um, her, her parents in their old age. Mm -hmm. And so we built our house on top of theirs. Mm. And growing up, I was looked after by my great-grandmother, who used to walk from... She lived um, not too far from where we lived in the neighborhood. So she used to walk every day uh, to our house to spend the afternoon with her daughter, my grandmother. Um, and she's a very strong woman. And so she'd iron the clothes while my mom was at work and look after us. Mm. Um, and as I'm describing this to you, um, I want to come back to the present mm. I've developed this practice over the last uh, two years where every night I give thanks to my ancestors um, and especially the women, the wahine of my family who have come before me. Mm -hmm. um, and they are an intrinsic part of who I am. So I say that I am the great granddaughter, um, the granddaughter, the mother, the daughter, the sister. Um, the partner and I offer gratitude and ask my ancestors to continue to walk with me as I find my own path on this life mm. yeah that's beautiful and did you get to know your great-grandmother like how old were you um, oh yes same? I've known yeah. her all my life yeah. I still dream about her I can still um, I can still smell the rotis that she used mm -hmm. to cook um, while waiting for us to come back home. And <laughs> I can still hear her telling my mom off if my mom was late <laughs> <laughs> coming back home from work too. <laughs> right, because that was her granddaughter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And, and what would you say, what, give us a picture of her. What, what characterized her? It sounds like she was a very strong influence on the family. Yes, her, so we called her Grandmère Gabi, Gabrielle was her name, mm -hmm. and uh, she was just, a, she was a strong woman, she was a matriarch of our family, mm -hmm. um, and my grandma, after her, uh, took on that role, you know, mm -hmm. um, and looking after 
looking back into the past um, and reflecting on the role that my mother has now taken amidst our family, I see the continuation of that lineage of mm. strong women, you know. Um, my great-grandma, as I said, uh, would walk um, a couple of kilometers, you know, every day to come and iron the clothes and clean the clean the house and tell her daughter off and her granddaughter off. Um, and she lived to uh, 99 years old. Mm. Um, the last time I saw her, I was back in Mauritius on a holiday um, from my studies, which at the time I was doing in Australia. And she had sick, she was bedridden and um, suffered from Alzheimer's, which is also what my grandmother, um, who was also my best friend, passed away from. Mm-hmm. But I remember my mom constantly telling me, you know, um, Gomer Gabi is so alert and she can still, even though she um, isn't distinguishing reality from from her her transcendent state, she still recognizes some voices. Mm. And she hadn't um, interacted with me for about a year. And when I went and visited her, I just, I remember I said, Gomer Gabi, it's Sophie Claire. And she, like, she kind of came alive in her, in bed. Mm. Um, And, yeah, for me, telling this story now, it just brings back and really brings home the the strength of the women that have come before me Mm. and how deeply I want to honor their, their mahi, Um, that they did with their hands, but also with their love in my expression of self. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. I think too often, particularly in the West, we get so caught up on individuality, individual achievements. I did this, I did that. And we forget that basic thing that we would not be here if it wasn't for our grandparents. And the legacy of what they represent is something that we can sometimes, unfortunately, turn our backs on. And so I love that practice of thinking about your heritage and where you've come from and and now what you represent. The way I've heard it sometimes, or maybe I'm just making this up, but, you know, like we are the spear point, we are the tip, and there's this vast behind us, you know, looking back into the past. It's all leading up. This moment in time, we're talking right now, and you're there forging the way, but it's only because of what's come in the past. Oh, yes, yes. I'm sitting in this room with you face-to-face, two different cultures, you know. um, I I can imagine my ancestors behind me. Mm. I can see them um, standing behind me, Mm -hmm. um, supporting me and, and connecting with with you through me as well Mm. and for me personally you know um mauritius was colonized by the french and the british Mm -hmm. um it was colonized the longest by the french hence why we all speak french but we gained our independence from the british Um, and so our education system is based on the british education system and so is our political system um and while I have this strong um, recognition of my ancestral roots, my whakapapa, I am also um, in recognition of the disconnect in terms of language and culture. 
I I grew up not speaking Creole, which is our mother tongue, and Creole is the language that the slaves, um, well, the Africans who were enslaved to work on the plantations, mm-hmm. developed um, as they were taught French or English. But they used it to plot escapes, and um, they used it to uh, to write songs about uh, their lives and about their suffering, and also about their um, rebellion and their freedom. Uh, but Creole is was so heavily stigmatized as I was growing up, you know. And the irony of that is that my father has been an activist. Um, for us all his life Mm. Uh, but he didn't speak Creole to my sister and I because he wanted us to have um, the opportunities that he didn't have Mm. Um, and so that's a part of my identity while the other part is so strong that I'm still learning to integrate now as an adult woman. Mm. It's really fascinating. It actually mirrors some other people I've interviewed um, who grew up not being um, not being given the opportunity to speak Tadeo, and then later on in life, with recognizing the importance of Tao Maori and their own Maori heritage, coming to learn the language and and kind of they were disenfranchised from that part of their identity because of the system that discouraged you know you don't learn this language you leave it behind in mm-hmm. order to embrace quote opportunity <laughs> yeah so very similar yeah. yeah i only started um exploring my creolite after leaving mauritius mm. and uh my friends and i speak french to each other or english to each other mm-hmm. and once you take that step of decolonizing a layer of yourself you, you can't go back. Mm. Then the journey, you, the, you go deeper and deeper into, into your decolonization journey and you start really seeing all of the, uh, the foreign ideas that have been internalized um, within you through uh, intergenerational colonization, um, through the education system, through uh, family, friends, you know. Um, and each step is a liberation of self mm. and walking yourself back to your authentic self, mm. I believe. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So your father sounds like he was quite a interesting person in terms of the things that he was involved in. Were you aware that he was an activist and involved in so many different things as a child? You know, coming back to your five, six, seven-year-old self, what was it like growing up in that household? Um, well, at the start of our conversation, I described the street that I grew up on and the different ethnicities um, represented mm-hmm. on my street. Uh Back home, uh, Creoles are an ethnic minority and a population minority as well. So we make up about 27% of the total population. Um, after slavery was abolished, uh, the enslaved um, Africans were not given uh, paid positions on the plantations and were pretty much sent out 
onto the street, um, disenfranchised and marginalized. Mm. Uh, so this uprootedness, the dehumanization and the compacted layers of oppression meant that we were a people with a disconnected past and no clear future forward, mm. um, no land um, to Turanga Waiwai back to, um, and largely unemployed. And the the long-term consequences of these intersectional um, forms of oppression have perjured to the present. Mm-hmm. And so my father first became um, involved as an agent of change uh, when he was in high school, he was a young socialist mm-hmm. um, and through his community work became more aware of um, the intersectionality of our creolite. And so he was in theatre um, too. So him and his friends uh, put together theatre productions and raised money to then buy raw materials to build uh, makeshift corrugated iron um houses, dwellings Mm. for homeless um, Creole families. But how I became aware of what he was doing that was um, going further than looking after just himself and our small nuclear family was um, he, he created a collective to ensure that uh, Creole rangatahi would have access to equal education mm-hmm. uh, going from primary to secondary school because our education system was um, divided by performance and by ethnic representation. So Creoles being 27% of the population, we we didn't have as big a representation in the best schools um, in Mauritius. Um, and so he put himself out there and um, with a group of friends uh, built this collective and took the case up to the um, uh, to the British um, Supreme Court, mm-hmm. the British Court, uh, and that's how I I fell into my father's um, mm. my father's world. Uh, I remember um, at one of the meetings that he was at, uh, someone said that he. Um, it was in his place to speak because his children went to good schools and he lived in a beautiful house and his wife, my mother, had straight hair and light skin. Mm. Um, And it didn't faze him because he believed in it. He believed in something that was bigger than himself. And that has had a profound impact on me. The, the, when I, um, when I, at the time, I didn't understand um, the magnitude of what that meant. When it really hit me was uh, in the 1990s, um, some Creole artists uh, died in police custody. One of them was Kaya. He was the, uh, the creator of Sege music, which is a, an amalgamation of Sega and reggae. So it's like the Mauritian reggae. Mm-hmm. And Kaya was lauded as the Bob Marley of the Indian Ocean. And he was also a, um, uh, an activist. He also supported the cause of 
allowing Rastafarians, he was a Rastafarian, um, to utilize cannabis as a spiritual practice in Mauritius. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what led him to be arrested by the police and taken into custody, and he died um, overnight. His death, his murder was, um, well, the police said that his murder was a suicide, and the whole country erupted in riots. Mm. Um, and my father left, uh, left our house, and my mum said to my sister and I that she wasn't sure when he would um, be back. It could be overnight, or it could be in a couple of days. And then she explained to me that he had gone to the neighborhood where Kaya's family lived um, to try and org to organize and mobilize um, communities and become part of this um, this movement while trying his best to stop it from falling into violence. Um, and yeah, that was... That's, I tell this story because it fills me with pride mm. and it also refills my cup of purpose mm. as to why I want to do what I do. Mm. And how old were you when that happened? I think I was... Might have been 11 years old, okay. maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so it's something that you can remember distinctly rather than a vague childhood memory. It's like... This was a real thing. Yes. Yeah. So talk us through, uh, it, it sounds like there's been amazing people in your life that have had profound influences on you and then what you do today. I would like to find out about what you do today as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, talk us through your high school years. Was Mauritius the place that you always thought you would stay? Like we're here in New Zealand. What happened in terms of your conception of the world and the place that you would make your way? I actually knew that I was going to leave Mauritius uh, since a very young age. Since I became fluent in English, okay. I loved English and had an English teacher who uh, who really developed um, this love for literature. And um, I remember learning under studying under her. I came back home one day and announced to my family that I was not going to speak French anymore <laughs> and, <laughs> and that if they wanted to uh, have conversations with me, that it would have to be in English. Right. So that really awakened my love for an Anglophone country. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm... Yeah, so was it the then, love of literature? Was it the teacher that inspired you? It was you? English. Yeah. It was the language. Right. I thought it was beautiful and um, uh, I loved being able to express myself in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, and How do you express yourself differently in English as opposed to French? Or um, I'm just curious because my father talks about this a lot. He grew up in America, so he speaks English, but he also learned Spanish. And he's always said that when he talks in Spanish, he's a much funnier version of himself. <laughs> that, that for some reason, he's, he's just more open, he's more gregarious, and, and Spanish brings it out in him. I, I don't know, it's just interesting to me how languages can alter us in some yeah, ways. So, yeah, yeah. Well, for me, um, when I express myself in English, because I left Mauritius at the age of 18 and developed developed myself in English-speaking countries, mm. I'm able to speak to my practice as an anthropologist better 
in English than I am in French. Mm-hmm. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that um, <laughs> how deep the colonization actually goes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the projects that I aspire to um, be able to bring to completion through my practice as an anthropologist is to translate papers that were um, papers that have been written by Creole scholars into Creole um, and build a library of um, of uh, papers that can then be um, understood mm-hmm. uh, by by Creole speaking um, Mauritians uh, so that we can develop our own language of knowledge um, of and our own language of decolonization mm-hmm. in Creole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I'm thinking of my own language experiences, because I lived in Japan for five years, so I learned to speak Japanese. And for me, the way that Japanese people express themselves represents that culture as well. And in the same way, Spanish, there's just a, a, a different way. It, it's a very... You know, it sounds quite musical, quite melodious, and, and it kind of is, and it represents a bit of the culture that's different to English. And yeah, we'll have to do a whole other podcast about that, I think. <laughs> what do, how does language as the architecture of meaning and, yes. uh, and identity, you know, the fact that we're speaking in English right now and we understand each other, what, it, what else is that saying? You know, the, well, during the lockdown, I was invited to um, sit in a podcast with a Mauritian Wahine who's become very much interested in decolonization as well. And we actually discussed whether we were going to record it in French, in English, or in Creole. Hmm. And we couldn't come to a conclusion because we wanted the podcast to be listened to by as many people as possible, which meant it would have to be in English. Hmm. But she was more comfortable in French, whereas I'm more comfortable in in English. Mm But then we both recognized how ironic it would be to that two Mauritian women would be recording a podcast about decolonization in the language of the colonizer. Mm-hmm. But then we both also um, became very aware that we wouldn't be able to express ourselves uh, with the same complexity in Creole simply because we never got a chance to learn it at school. Mm-hmm. And that speaks so much for the amount of work that we still need to do um, to center our knowledge production and our language. And I say this, um, I'm also aware of my own um, positioning in in this conversation because I have friends who are fluent in Creole and who are doing PhDs in um, connecting Creole languages across, you know, New Orleans, Seychelles, Mm. the Caribbeans, Mauritius, and further decolonizing that conversation. So I want to say that this is also part of my own journey Mm -hmm. um, to reclaim myself and the culture that I am a part of, you know, the culture that makes me. Mm. Well, if we can get a link to that other conversation, let's put it in the show notes and then people can find it and listen. So you're coming through high school. You've had this revelation that English is a really, you know, you're enjoying English and you maybe want to go overseas someday. Yeah. Talk us through what happened next. Where did you go or what, what did that look like? And what did that, how, what did that do for that family dynamic, you know, with your father very ingrained within Mauritian society? Yeah, what was his reaction? Mm-hmm. My parents have both come from um, 
working class backgrounds. Mm -hmm. My uh, mother's father was a um, like a security guy um, for the Mauritian Commercial Bank. Mm -hmm. And on my dad's side, my grandfather was a prison guard. So it was very important for them to be able to give their children the opportunities that they were enabled to have. Mm -hmm. Um, Ballet was at the request of my mother who wanted to be a ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents really wanted me to, and my sister, to further our studies overseas as well because Mm -hmm. they were able to 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 gift us that. Mm. Yeah. So how did you come about deciding where to go? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cultural context at the time, I feel. You know, um, back home in Mauritius, and it'll probably be very similar in other sort of island nations and developing countries as well. Every year we receive this influx of promoters from different universities around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so we attend fairs and... uh, you know, get to become acquainted with all these different universities and tertiary education providers. Um, And in Mauritius, the academic migration goes in waves. Uh, The first wave, uh, which uh, is known historically as the intellectual exile, happened when um, our country uh, became independent and a large community of, of Creoles migrated to Australia Uh, then to France and when I was preparing to um, to go over to to when I was preparing to graduate from high school the big thing was either to go to Australia or to France Um, and again that speaks to us looking to the west Mm -hmm. for legitimate to be legitimized in on our own journeys Um, my friends were also um, going to Australia so we off we all took, so we, off we all went. And I enrolled at La Trobe University in Melbourne mm-hmm. in the International Relations and Diplomacy Program. Hmm. And what was that like for you, like coming into a Western country like that? It was Coming into a Western country was a complete culture shock for me. And, you know, back home we have such cocooned lives as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we... We talk a lot with our friends um, about how we didn't grow up with part-time jobs. Uh, that's just was not a thing in mm. Mauritius, you know. Um, and again, as I said at the start of this um, conversation, my country, my whole country is a little bit, just a little bit smaller than Canterbury. Right. <laughs> and then I found myself at 18 years old in Melbourne, on my own, mm-hmm. uh, first time that I had lived outside of home, first time I lived on my own, first time paying taxes, <laughs> first time um, being in a foreign country. Uh, so it was definitely a huge heart, eye, mind opening experience. Mm. Um, but it also came with its challenges. Um, I lost my, my grounding, I think. I lost my direction in a way. Um, and was just hungry to experience everything that this new reality had to offer. Mm. Uh, But I'm very grateful um, for that experience because it 
it brought me out of myself as a child and uh, sent me on this this path that mm. I am still on now. Mm. That's great. So how long did you end up staying in Melbourne for a couple I was of years? In, I was in Melbourne for three years. Mm. Uh, I, I had to leave Melbourne, actually. Um, I overstayed my student visa. Mm. <laughs> and... Um, and that was a that was a big humbling um, experience for me, but uh, the time that I spent in in Melbourne uh, opened me up to a few things: uh, countercultural movements through the uh, alternative community, the burner community, um, volunteering, and uh, the migrant integration and refugee integration space. Mm-hmm. Um, and anthropology hmm. and those three um, aspects are still very much pillars of my life now hmm. um, and have have informed um, how I express myself the career that I've decided to embark on and the projects that I involve myself in now hmm. well I would love to understand anthropology I'm just wondering if I ask this question now or I wait a little bit. <laughs> just maybe describe what happened next. How did you end up in New Zealand? Was that a... Uh, well, I... So when I returned to Mauritius um, from Australia, mm-hmm. I didn't really have a plan. I knew that I wanted to uh, continue my studies. Mm-hmm. But after having completed... Um, international relations and diplomacy. I wasn't sure whether politics was for me and um, I wasn't sure whether political science was for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I landed back in Mauritius um, humbled <laughs> and uh, unsure of my next move. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, actually, um, my parents were hosting an anthropologist uh, from Vassar, who was doing work on uh, Le Mans, which is a historically significant um, site in the story of uh, of slavery and the uh, the abolition of slavery and the reclaiming of freedom. Mm. Uh, and Candice was this gorgeous African American um, scholar with dreadlocks down to her ankles. And she spoke Creole better than I did, better than a lot of my friends did. Um, Because an aspect of anthropology is to immerse oneself um, as deeply as possible in the culture that one seeks to understand. Mm. Um, And so to conduct her research with the Creole community with integrity, she embarked on teaching herself, on learning Creole. Um, another aspect of anthropology um, and that immersion is uh, to live with and as the um, community that you seek to understand and whose story you seek to tell. Mm. Um, hence why she was living um, with my family. And her and I um, had an instant connection and the way that she saw the world and the way that she... Uh, witnessed others without judgment um, deep inspired me mm. 
deeply and also um, were embodiments that I just naturally felt were was the right way for me to, to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work that she did on Le Mans ended up being instrumental in the recognition of Le Mans as a UNESCO site mm-hmm. and a recentering of the, um, the, the history of Le Mans um, within our own history, um, Creole history in mm-hmm. Mauritius. Um, and that cemented it for yeah. me. You so know? you saw a real tangible outcome of yeah. what she was doing. It wasn't just an academic thing, like yeah, writing yeah. articles that no one read. It had actual real-world implications. Substance yeah. and, and impact. Yeah. You know, we were talking about impact when you and I caught up for my podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, I'm a believer that um, when you surrender to the flow of life, the wider actually shows you where to go. Mm. And everything was pointing me in the direction of anthropology. Mm. Um, You know, you asked me before what it was like in Australia, and I shared with you that I, one of the pillars was counterculture. Mm. Um, And I met a young anthropologist at the time um, who was conducting research in the absence of rituals and rites of passage in um, young Australians Mm -hmm. uh, and the consequences of this absence. Um, And so he, him, him and I ended up working. um, Well, I assisted him Mm. uh, in some of his research uh, and the way that he was conducting um, that investigation, the way that he was connecting with others from this human-centered place, uh, but was also able to then draw out insights and t- and connect those to larger um, ways of being that are that we can all see ourselves in mm-hmm. was fascinating to me, mm-hmm. um, and so anthropology um, called me. <laughs> That's great, and when it calls you, is that? Was there an opportunity then to come to New Zealand to study it further, or yeah? Yes. So, um, so while I was in Mauritius uh, during this time, um, I I met my partner Lee, mm-hmm. who's a, a British who migrated to New Zealand with his parents mm-hmm. uh, when he was six years old, um, and we fell in love. Um, my best friend actually introduced me um, right. to, to Lee. She rang me and she said, Sophie, I've just met this guy and I feel like he might be the love of your life. Really? <laughs> you really, wow. you need to meet him because you guys will get along like a house on fire. And she introduced me to Lee and Gosh. that was 12 years ago. Wow. Uh, <laughs> what a prediction, huh? <laughs> um, and so we were looking for a place where we would both be able to pursue uh, what what drove us to pursue mm-hmm. our passion. Mm-hmm. He's a skydiver, um, and I wanted to study anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, his dream was to open a skydiving center, um, and so we decided to come to New Zealand together. Mm-hmm. Um, accelerated somewhat by the Canterbury earthquakes, Mm-hmm. Uh, that his whole family lives in, in Ototahi. And so uh, going through that experience, being on a small tropical island was 
the call for him to return home right. as well. Mm. Um, and I, um, I decided to apply for universities um, and said that if I got accepted, um, I would come to that Aotearoa. That would be the sign, huh? Yeah. That's great. And so when you came to Canterbury, was that as much a shock as Melbourne or was it, yeah, what was that like? I arrived in Ototahi three weeks after the Canterbury earthquakes. Mm. Um, it was... <laughs> <laughs> I landed, I remember, um, you know, we were coming in to land and I realized that the city was like practically mm. no longer there. Mm -hmm. And then walking out of the airport, there were armed defenders everywhere and different, you know, army mm. um, personnel with in full combat gear. And mm -hmm. uh, and the city, there was the city was um, well, the city was gone and there was so much trauma and so much chaos uh, around me, especially coming from Mauritius, which doesn't even have an army and. Yeah, you, know, and you like, get here and there's barriers and you can't go in this central city because it's all blocked off. And yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was not a normal time. <laughs> yeah, and everything that Lee had showed me of Ototahi no longer mm. existed. So Seoul Square was gone mm. and he knew that I had lived in Melbourne. So he showed me some of the places that would remind me of my, my life in Melbourne City and all those were gone. Right. And as an international student, I... Uh, most of my courses ended up being um, cancelled that year because of the intellectual exile. Right. Um, uh, and the ones that we were able to continue to take were all um, were all given in tents um, in the car parks of right. the university. <laughs> So it's definitely not so the experience unusual. that I was expecting. Um, but at the same time, there was so much going on, you know, the, uh, to observe that and be studying anthropology at the same time mm. was a gift. Yeah. So tell me about anthropology. What are we actually talking about when we say I'm studying anthropology? Just for those of us who haven't studied it, can you frame it and tell us what exactly is it? The way that I um, the way that I describe it is that I am a student of everything, and I pass judgment on no one or nothing. It is the study of people and culture, mm -hmm. and what brings people together to form intentional communities, whichever they may be, and grow these communities through um, daily interaction with themselves, daily questioning of the systems that they build, uh, looking into the future um, to, uh, to grow these communities. Mm -hmm. um, my focus has been on um, the experience, the lived experiences of women, migrant women in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and in that space, there is wealth in, in the lived experience. Uh, there's so much to learn from observing the ways in which families 
um, live at home, that we can tie into gender, that we can tie into religion, that we can tie into to politics. Um, and so that's what anthropology is to me. It mm. is um, opening yourself up to telling the stories of of um, the communities that make up our world without passing judgment on on who they are. Mm. And does that involve a lot of historical looking backwards as well and seeing how communities have developed? Like you mentioned the Creole community, for example, that because it in a way it seems like it's embracing a number of different disciplines. So I did a law degree, but I also did a history degree at Canterbury, and I did a political science part of it as well. Like It sounds like those elements are important to understand within that context that you're describing. Um, the distinction of the anthropological process is in the method. Right. Um, so participant observation uh, is... A key aspect of it and so that's what I was describing before living with um, the communities that you seek to understand um, and experiencing life mm -hmm. with them it is also about um, the social sciences you know um, so looking to the past yes so it seems to me because I studied history I studied political science in my BA at Canterbury um, and it seems to me like what you're describing actually embraces you know, all of these different disciplines. But then the unique bit that you're saying is that the person actually almost participates in the community itself. Would that be right? Um, yes. So um, anthropology is multi-layered in the way that we interact with the communities that we seek to understand. So it's not just about observing and taking notes. It's about participating in the culture, mm. uh, learning about the language and the meaning that's behind the language. Uh, the symbols that people use to tie in their um, lived experience with who they are and where they have come from. Mm. Um, so that's why I said before that we're students of everything, but we pass judgment on nothing. Mm. Um, and I love that, you know, I'm spending time with the Burner community or spending time with the Edmund Hillary Fellowship community and really diving deep into what makes these um, groups of people tick, what makes them um, create, um, and how they interact with others around them, and what kind of impact they build in the world um, by coming together in that way. Mm, that's really good. And that was what we were doing before we recorded this podcast, was talking about the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, because you've been thinking a lot about that, but then interviewing people who are involved and what does that community look like now? What might it look like in the future? And how mm. does how do things get shaped? Right? Mm. And that's another aspect of it is ethnographic fieldwork. Um, so, and as it says, ethnographic fieldwork is really going into the field and uh, looking at how people are in communities, move in their natural environments. So um, I could be one way of... Uh, seeking to understand the Edmund Hillary Fellowship community could have been to have just conducted a series of structured interviews with all the fellows and then gathered some data from that. Mm -hmm. But we want to go deeper. Um, people, um, people do some things, then they talk about doing some doing some things. But there's also a lot to be said and 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 a lot to be learned in 
the body language that you can observe, uh, the subconscious um, motivations that are behind the information that others share with us as researchers. Mm -hmm. um, and so as anthropologists, we look at this experience of being human from a holistic perspective mm -hmm. and then draw insights from um, these moments that um, we can then tie in to the larger cultural context um, that these communities are embedded in and make sense then of the whole picture, mm -hmm. not just a part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, in a way, uh, I think in the West too often we talk about elevator pitches, you know, you need to say what you, you do in 30 seconds or less. Um, and what you're talking about is going even deeper and getting into the real motivations, which, to be honest, is one of the reasons I do this podcast, because I actually want to ask some of these questions and go deeper with people and find out about their great grandmother who motivates them today, you know, because that's that's the true, you know, you're getting into the heart of a person if you can understand where they've come from and then how that's informed what they do today. Mm, so definitely. maybe this is like an anthropological podcast. That yes, well, this is, <laughs> this is an anthropological, it's a method. Yeah. It's definitely a methodology. And that's another aspect now of anthropology that I want to bring into this conversation is um, that within our discipline, uh, we have branched out into several ways of, of doing what we do. Uh, so there's visual anthropology, which focuses a lot on um, teasing meaning out of um, visual culture and capturing and telling stories of culture visually, so mm -hmm. through documentaries and filmed interviews. Uh, I don't know if you remember at Huia's Hui, mm -hmm. Antoinette and Jordan um, filmed the whole evening and uh, we were each I invited each fellow to be an active participator. Um, so all these are elements of culture and mm -hmm. elements of um, of us building the worlds that make um, that give meaning to our mm -hmm. our journey on this planet. Um, so visual anthropology focuses on that. Cultural anthropology looks at um, the building blocks and the evolution of culture, both historically and also laterally um, across um, subcultures. Um, corporate anthropology is another um, sub-discipline, um, some aspects of which I've incorporated in the, um, the project that I've conducted for the EHF. Uh, and that's more focused on um, looking at the world now, the world of business mm. now, because business in the corporate world are only the latest cultural trend. Um, you know, the way that we do business is very much based on the British East India Company. Mm. Um, so it's understanding the processes and the systems that build our modern society mm. um, through a cultural lens. Mm. Um, and finally, there is applied anthropology, which takes all of these elements um, and channels them into um, pointed um, action mm -hmm. uh, with very um, with crystallized outcomes, um, and that can be across disciplines. Mm. So, That's I think fascinating. I've given you a. Good summary. It's a, it's a great summary. <laughs> and the thing I like about it is that it is going a bit deeper. And I think in Western culture, particularly, we do tend to skate on the surface and don't go that little bit deeper. And one of the things that struck me recently is that, you know, even a thing like the fact that we can read 
and we can write. Like that's relatively recent that pretty much everyone within New Zealand can read and write. If you went back several hundred years, you know, it, it wasn't a given that you could read and write. And yet we kind of now assume that that's just the way it's been. And I think about this podcast and the voice and listening to each other and looking each other in the eye. And I realized that, you know, audio and communicating and storytelling is a much more, is a much deeper way of communicating than writing down and copy pasting and, and putting it in a report. Um, and actually what I'm doing with this, it's kind of going back thousands of years to when we probably were sitting around a fire telling stories of the day and remembering what had happened, you know, the week before or whatever. And yet we too often focus on what we know now as being the way that we do things. So it sounds like what you're doing is trying to go a bit deeper and really get to the heart of how does this culture get created and, and what does that mean for society? Well, the combination of ethnographic fieldwork, participant observation, and these um, techniques, these anthropological um, frameworks, the sub-disciplines, mm -hmm. uh, have, when they work together, um, they bring to the surface the cognitive biases that we have. Mm. Um, you know, we go out in the field to learn about others. And often when people think about anthropology, they think about um, anthropologists conducting research in far away exotic um, places and traditional tribes um, and, you know, learning things about these tribes. But uh, there's so much to learn even in the way in turning our gaze back on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, often... Um, at the end of a research, we think that we're, um, we're uncovering the other, but really what ends up happening is we become confronted with our own biases, mm. be they sexism or racism or classism or um, the ideas that we had about uh, the communities that, we're, that we thought we understood, mm -hmm. you know? And that's where the disruptive um, insights can then be drawn to the surface. Mm. Um, and then these disruptive insights, because they're so anchored in lived experience, can then inform strategies or um, campaigns or initiatives that are more authentic to the underlying truth mm. of what the shared experience actually is. Mm. Yeah, that's really great. Well, it's a fascinating area. When you get to the end of your life and you look back, what are you hoping that having studied this, that you'll be able to say, that's my contribution? Have you, have you got anything in mind? You, you talked a little bit about Creole language and things. Would that be the thing or you're still discovering what it is going to be? I hope to be able to look back on a body of work that is multidimensional, creative, and interdisciplinary, but which has told stories um, that were hidden and centered voices uh, which didn't necessarily have a chance to express themselves 
in authenticity. Um, and I hope to look on a body of work that reconciles um, my identity as a Creole and will have offered um, a platform for a decolonized perspective of my world mm -hmm. to come to the surface that leaves a legacy and opens the way for others to do the same mm. in that's their own authenticity. Yeah, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing about your own life journey. The thing that really has struck out to me is just the influence in some of these people in your past, you know, that, that your great-grandmother is someone that you remember, recognize her strengths, and then asking how, I can, how can you be the best version of yourself in honor of these people before. But also I've really enjoyed learning about anthropology, so <laughs> thank you for sharing and helping me better understand exactly what it is and how it has a role to play, you know, both now, but what the future will hold. So now just before we finish up, I understand you have a poem that you'd like to read, and I really love poetry. I think it has a way of expressing things that we can't otherwise, so I would love to hear what you have to share. So my anthropological journey has been um, very much inspired by black feminism and black feminist anthropology, mm -hmm. uh, the work of the Combahee River Collective, um, who were instrumental in um, articulating intersectional feminism, which gives a space to uh, women like myself, who are not from the West, who are not from developed countries. and. Um, I wanted to read a poem by Maya Angelou, mm -hmm. um, Still I Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and just like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Cause I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me through your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I rise. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and I am the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. It's beautiful. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Sophie Claire. For me, I really enjoyed hearing about her life history and how that's informed the work that she's doing today in studying anthropology. And to be honest, I didn't know that much about anthropology, so I feel like I learned quite a lot during that interview, which is always what I love about talking with really different, diverse people. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Music